0: Uh, Today, uh, we're going to continue a series, an Advent series we started last week, called The Coming King. Uh, We're talking about Jesus, of course, the one we worship, the one we adore, not only at Christmas time but hopefully year-round, and we're using as a guide uh, for the next few weeks the closing words of probably the most famous prayer Jesus ever prayed, a word that he used um, when he taught his disciples how to pray. He said these words at the end of it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week, if you were here, you know we talked about how Jesus ushered in a different kind of kingdom than the one ruled by Caesar Augustus in that day. Caesar had a very impressive kingdom, but it was a very different kingdom than the one Jesus brought to this earth. Jesus said that it's your kingdom, God, not my kingdom. It's your reign, Not my reign. It is your agenda, not mine. And then he goes on to say, God, it's your power. We're going to look at that today. It's your power. Question, anybody in this room, if you're really honest, could you use a little more power this morning? You have a challenge at work. You have a concern over someone in your life. A need, somebody near to you, maybe a friend, a spouse, a child, a parent. Any of you in this room this morning carry a burden or a concern or a worry or a regret or fear? What I want you to know this morning is it is God's power. We were never made to live in our own power. But for some reason we have a hard time believing God's power is readily available to us. And so Jesus teaches us, he says, pray it's your power, God. You know, it's so interesting because the subject of power is really central to the Christmas story. But it rarely gets talked about because it's not a very sentimental part of the Christmas narrative. We're actually going to look at this because it involves some of the central characters, characters that all of us have heard about. And it talks about how they handled the problems and the pressures of life during that time. As I said last week, the best part, The very best part of the incarnation is that Jesus came for you. And if you're here today and you have any problems, if you are powerless, if you feel powerless, if life has not turned out quite the way you planned, maybe in your life or maybe in this year, I want you to know that Jesus is coming for you this morning. This is the way Matthew begins it, the first part of the Christmas story. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod. And the key phrase here, believe it or not, is during the time of King Herod. This is not just a calendar statement, friends. Jesus is born in an age, in a time of huge, big trouble. Herod had been given by Rome the title, King of the Jews. It was actually kind of a formal legal title, And you need to know this about Herod. Herod was a very, very ambitious guy. He was actually, if you think about it, racially he was an Arab. Religiously he was Jewish. Culturally he was Greek. But politically he always sided with Rome. And that was his identity, his power and his success was the fact that he was a political leader. This guy was married to 10 or 11 women, uh, wives, depending on who's counting. He got suspicious of the only wife he ever really loved, a lady by the name of Miriam, so he had her executed. He had Miriam's mother executed, and he had two of his sons by Miriam executed. When his old barber, the guy who cut his hair, tried to stick up for his two sons, he had his barber executed. He had all of his predecessors killed, and he literally taxed the poor in Israel into homelessness. This is one of the reasons there was so much rebellion in that day when Jesus was born. Herod was the one who built the great temple in Jerusalem. He was known as Herod the Great, massive builder of cities, but he had placed on the temple this golden eagle. It was considered a pagan symbol. It was very offensive to those in Israel. So a group of people actually snuck in and tore that golden eagle down. Herod had all the usual suspects rounded up, had them all executed, and those that he thought were the ringleaders, the masterminds, he actually had them burned alive. When Herod was on his deathbed, get this, he was in such despair that he actually tried to commit suicide himself five days before he actually died. A guard, one of his guards, stopped him. And there was a lot of noise and confusion throughout the palace. And the son, who was to be his heir to the throne, the crown prince, thought his dad had died, so he assumed power. When Herod heard about this, on his deathbed, he had his son killed. Five days later, Herod died. And he knew that because of the nature of his reign, no one would be sad or upset about it. So he actually left instructions in his will that scores of prominent Israelites were to be rounded up and executed on the day he died because he wanted there to be weeping in Israel. Josephus, the Roman historian, said Herod never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who chose to be a party of his enemies. See, here's what you need to know. Jesus was born in the time of King Herod. It was a very unfortunate time to be born. And the way Matthew's Gospel continues this is it says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, we now understand why, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And now we know why, right? When Herod is disturbed, everybody is disturbed. So Herod wants to make sure that this political rival is removed. But he's kind of thwarted in his attempts. He can't actually find out which baby boy in Bethlehem was born, king of the Jews. Matthew says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We'll come back to that in a second. Like you, probably like Robbie and myself as well, we grew up in... Churches that did Christmas pageants. Anybody remember the old Christmas pageants? Everybody would dress up in bathrobes. Remember, pretend to be Joseph and Mary. Shepherds and wise men. Somehow, for some strange reason, I guess, I guess I didn't want to scare the kids to death, they would never put this in the Christmas pageant. This actually became known as the slaughter of the innocents. And it's an interesting phrase when you think about the life and death of Jesus. See, every year this time, when you hear people sing about, talk about, write about this thing of peace. Christmas cards greet you with this whole, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christmas carol contains songs like, sleep in heavenly peace. You even see Christmas decorations with references to Jesus, Prince of Peace. But is our world really at peace? you know there's a billion dollar industry in our world and it kind of creates this idealized expectation of christmas it's called the greeting card business and unfortunately for us that sentimentalized cinem- uh, kind of manufactured Hallmark moments it doesn't always depict the realities of life maybe this year in the midst of your pain and your guilt maybe you've been through divorce maybe you're deep into debt maybe you've had some bad choices Maybe you're dealing with depression or loneliness, whatever it is. What I want you to know this Christmas is there is good news. When Jesus was born, all was not calm, all was not bright. That little baby did not sleep in heavenly peace. There was a price on his forehead. And you say, well, what is the significance of that? It has great significance for us because it sets up a very stark contrast between some of the central figures in this story. The first is when an angel comes to a guy named Joseph whose life has been disrupted by this whole story. And God says to him these words, Get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now think about Joseph here. He's already lost his prized possession, his reputation as a holy, righteous man. Why? Because he was willing to marry a woman who everybody knew was already pregnant. So in a sense, God has said to Joseph, you're going to lose your home, your job, your people, your country. You're going to take your wife and your small child who is dependent on you, and you are going to live as refugees, fugitives. And if I were honest this morning, I'd say to God, probably what Joseph at least thought, I thought this was going to be Jesus, Yeshua, like Savior of the world. What I want you to know is that The Bible tells us that this powerlessness of Joseph is very important to us. God wants you to know this morning that if you are powerless, if you don't have a job today, if you've lost a home this year, if you don't have a lot of money, if you're terribly disappointed about the way some things have turned out this year, please do not give up. Jesus is coming for you. He has come for you. Then we hear from little Mary, this little peasant girl who's told by the angel that she will give birth to the Messiah. And her words are so amazing that they have been recorded for all history. And the reason her words were recorded, and this is very important, is because these words are so subversive. The people in that day thought that they were so subversive that if downtrodden people, if marginalized people, if powerless people ever were to hear these words and begin to believe them, it might incite them to have a little hope. Listen to these words. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Listen to this He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, he has scattered those who are prone, proud, excuse me, in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. (laughs) If you think about it, if you think about it, this is the very first Christmas carol that it was ever recorded. This is a song that Mary sang. And everybody who heard it, they knew who the king was. One of the reasons, again, the temple was so controversial is because Herod is the guy who built it. It was called Herod's temple, and he's the one that built it on the backs of the poor. It was his taxation policies, his economic policies that crushed the poor in Jesus' day. You ever notice when Jesus is teaching, he talks a lot about landowners and how somebody who owns land goes away, and then they come back and they check on the land and they check on the servants. You remember these stories? The reason why he tells so many of these stories is because that's exactly what was going on economically in Jesus' day. The poor people, exactly like Mary's family, lost their land and became homeless in that economy. And you know who benefited? It was Herod. Meanwhile, here's little meek, mild Mary singing her song. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Anybody remember who's sitting on the throne? He has sent the way the rich away empty. Who's the rich? See, this is the kind of stuff you don't see on Hallmark cards, friends. But Mary said them, and she sung them, and somebody wrote them down, and they got put in a book. And somebody had to whisper to Mary, Mary, sh- You go around talking about kings getting dethroned, and you got a little baby coming along. Somebody may get mad. Somebody may want to kill that baby. See, this is awesome to me. There were really only about three people on earth who understood what was going on. Only three people really knew just how subversive this little baby lying in a manger was going to be. One of them was the most powerful man in the country. His name was Herod. The other two were powerless, penniless, illiterate Jewish young people. And to one of them, Jesus' coming was the foundation of hope. Another little Christmas carol that we sing this time of year. Old little town of Bethlehem. Remember the line that says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. See, it's all the hopes, listen, all the hopes of Mary and Joseph, but it's all the fears of Herod. To one, Jesus is the foundation of hope. To the other one, it was a catastrophe to be feared. Even if it meant genocide. So Herod is merciless and he does the absolute unthinkable. Herod sends soldiers to Bethlehem. Now, this is right in character with who he was. He sends them into the homes of peasant families who are already powerless to stop him. They break in and when they find a little infant boy, they take out a sword and they take his life. And they leave. And we sing songs like, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. But things were not still in Bethlehem. You know, it's very interesting to me. Matthew he could have admitted this. He could have omitted this from the story. But instead of omitting it, he actually underlines it. And I want to tell you how he does it. He does what is done a lot of times in the New Testament. He quotes a verse from the Old Testament. He goes back to the text. And he goes back to the prophet Jeremiah. He said, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let me try to explain a little bit of this. Jeremiah, the prophet, in his turn is referencing Rachel. And Rachel was the wife, as you probably remember, of Jacob in the Old Testament. They lived way before Jeremiah. And it wasn't that Rachel's biological children died, but Jacob actually buried her, we're told in the book of Genesis. He buried his wife, uh, Rachel, uh, Jacob did, in the town of Bethlehem. And during Jeremiah's day, many, many years later, the people of Israel are being carried off into exile. They will be homeless. They will lose their lives there, many of them. And they will have to walk this road. Now envision this. They'll walk this road that leaves from Ramah, Bethlehem, And the rabbis used to say in Jeremiah's day that Rachel had been buried by Jacob in Bethlehem so that she could weep for the exiles who were losing their home. This is a very anguished verse in the Old Testament. And Matthew uses it to try to express what's going on here. Rachel is a picture of a mother, of Israel like a mother, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. That's the way we are. We want to be comforted. We want to say, I, 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 I need to understand. I need to know it's not going to be so bad. And Rachel says, no, it is not okay. Something has to be done. Something has to be done. And what Matthew is saying here is that something is going to be done. Something is going to be done. Why does he tell us about this agony of Bethlehem? Here's the deal. If Jesus could enter a world where unthinkable, listen friends, unthinkable evil and suffering took place, even in that little town of Bethlehem, if Jesus could enter into that world, maybe in our world, a world that has seen two world wars in the last century, unspeakable genocides, Bombing after bombing, terrorist attack after terrorist attack. Maybe Jesus can come into our world. This morning I want you to know today that some of you I realize have suffered loss. Some of you are broken. Some of you will have an empty chair around the table this year. It hurts so bad that, to be honest with you, you wish that Christmas would not even come. Maybe you have a broken heart. Maybe it's for a child who is far away from God this morning. I want to tell you, do not give up. Do not give up on the power and the peace of Jesus. Because Jesus comes to Bethlehem in the time of King Herod. I'll tell you another part of the story that never gets into Christmas pageants. After Jesus is born, he's taken to the temple. Remember on the eighth day? There's an old man there, remember Simeon? He holds the baby up in the air and he says a blessing. It's always a very poignant moment. Anytime that little child, you know, has come and he's uh, dedicated or they're Christian or they're baptized, whichever. And Simeon blesses the child and he speaks over that child, and it's such a moving moment. And Simeon says, you know, I have seen the salvation of my people. I've been waiting for this. He says, now I can die in peace. And Mary and Joseph are just glowing as new parents. And then he has one more thing to say. And this he looks directly at Mary. He turns away from the baby. He turns away from Joseph and he looks right at Mary. And Simeon says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here's what he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. (laughs) Imagine being a new parent and you get a congratulations card in the mail with a cute little picture of a baby on the front and then you open it up and it says this, your baby is happy and healthy and smart but he's going to rip out your guts and he'll shatter your heart. (laughs) A sword's going to pierce her soul, Mary. Every time it's Jesus' birthday, Mary has to remember all the birthdays of all those little boys in Bethlehem who will never celebrate birthdays. All the families who had sons who never grew up. At least a few of them had to think, you know, if Mary and Joseph would have just stayed. The only reason my kid is not here is because Herod was trying to get rid of their boy. Don't they know if just one person, Jesus, would have died, all the others could have been saved? Boy, Mary's going to have to get used to that, isn't she? I wonder how it marks Jesus when he grows up, knowing that his life could have been given to save so many. You see, he began his life as he would end it, with somebody in power wanting him dead. You know, you look at devotional books sometimes at Christmas and other times, and there's all these great titles that they give Jesus. They try to capture him and say, here's what's so amazing about Jesus. And they say stuff like, Emmanuel, or Messiah, or Son of God, or Son of Man, or Lion of Judah, or Rose of Sharon. (laughs) You know, it's very interesting. They don't usually use one particular title. But Matthew mentions it over and over and over in this story. See if you notice it. He says, Make a careful search for the child, the place where the child was. They saw the child with his mother. Take the child and escape to Egypt. So he got up, took the child, take the child and go to the land of Israel. So he got up, took the child. Anybody hear the word? Lucky guess. (laughs) You know, in the ancient world, they weren't very sentimental about children. The odds of a child growing up into adulthood were not very good in the ancient world. And to be a child was to be dependent, powerless, defenseless, fragile. Jesus is to save his people from their sins, but he can't even save himself. See, Jesus is God the child. Jesus is God made utterly vulnerable. Jesus is God rendered completely powerless, So if you feel that way this Christmas, (laughs) you need to know that your life doesn't have to look like those postcards you get in the mail. Jesus has been there. So much so that he makes one of the most remarkable statements later on in his life. And sometimes I think we just kind of gloss over this. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. He had to be thinking God changed and became like a little child. God is at work in Bethlehem. We'll end with this. To me, this is the best part of Matthew's story. What he wants us to know is that no trial, listen, no problem, no expression of evil goes on forever, friends. So in verse 19 of chapter 2, He says a little phrase. He simply says, after Herod died. Now remember, we started out with during the time of King Herod, and now he ends several verses later and he says, after Herod died. In fact, Matthew mentions the fact that Herod is dead three times in chapter 2 alone. What do you think Matthew wants us to know? He's dead, right. Not a trick question. He says it over and over. Now Herod could have been the one to proclaim Jesus as king of the world. But he did not do that. Herod chose another path. See, we kind of would have expected that Herod said religiously he was Jewish. He was the builder of the temple. You would kind of think he was the defender of Jerusalem. So he might have welcomed Jesus. But oddly enough, it was the Magi. The pagan guys, the astrologers from the east, they end up kneeling before Jesus. And Herod, King Herod, he just wants to get rid of him. And what Matthew wants us to know, and this is awesome, Matthew wants us to know that Herod the Great, with all of his wealth, with all of his glory, with all of his giant throne, with his enormous power, with his crown, Herod... The great is now Herod the dead. This is so important. The magi bow. And Herod says, I'm going to be king for as long as I can be king. And what Matthew's trying to say is you have to decide which road you're going to go down. The road that will put you on your knees and leads to peace and power. Or the one that puts you on a throne and leads to anxiety and fear and eventually the grave. Herod died. You know who else is going to die? Not a trick question. (laughs) Everybody here. He's Herod the Great, but at the end of the chapter, listen, Matthew deliberately calls him three times, the king, the king Herod. But after the Magi go, and after they worship, and after they coronate Jesus as the true king, from that point on, he never says the word King Herod again. He only says Herod. Isn't that awesome? And what I want you to know this holiday season is that Jesus may not save you from your circumstances, but he will certainly save you in them. And he may not make your troubles and problems magically disappear, but I tell you, he will bring you a sense of peace and understanding that transcends the world of Herod. But it totally, 100% depends on which road you choose. There is a road to the manger, and there is a road to the throne. King Herod bowed up and plotted, and the Magi bowed down and worshipped. And today we face the same choice. Let's pray. Lord, I hope today that by looking at a part of the Christmas story that oftentimes we don't like to look at, we can see your power at work, not only in Bethlehem, but in Lakeland, Florida. We really have a choice, and that choice is, do we come to you for power, do we come to you for peace, or do we try to obtain it by sitting on our own throne? Today, may you soften our hearts, may you infuse us with your power, and may you absolutely renew our mind to remember, Herod is dead, Jesus is alive. Speak to us in these last moments, I pray. Amen.